great reading, Shannon. Thank you so much. And a great psalm. We're going to unpack these beautiful words tonight. And uh, before we do that, that's, uh, let's ask God to bless us. So, Father, we have come together in this place to recognize that You are God and we are not. That we are creatures, and in that creatureliness, we pray to be humble and modest before You in all the days of our life on this planet. In all the ways that we interact with other people and go about our business, we pray for that that humility in recognizing that in all that we do, there is a God in heaven who not only sees all, but is with us every step of the way in the, in the good days and in those moments of adversity. And we pray, Father, that, that, that we will see the goodness, Your goodness, in the land of the living. And so we wait. And we pray for strength and courage for our heart as we wait. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There are all kinds of truths that we live with in this life. I'll give you two. Everybody deals with bad days. Everybody deals with bad days. It's not always a good day. Sometimes it's a bad day. And then the second truth is not everyone deals with them correctly. There are ways to deal with it rightly. Not everybody does that. This just in from the world of bad ideas. Sai Chen is a designer who has introduced an unusual jacket to his men winter wear collection. It looks like this. It is a big puffy green parka with four sets of stuffed hands clasped around the front to back as if you're walking down the street and four people are hugging you. It's creepy to me to see this jacket. Why the jacket? Why did you design it this way? Designer Sai Chan, what say you? I quote, everybody needs love, don't they? And they need to be warm and hugged. End of quote. Let me offer a biblical solution to dealing with adversity as it's found in Psalm 27. And what we see is the beauty of the Lord, our need to gaze upon it, and how that changes us. First, why do we need God's beauty? Well, when you look at verses 4 and 5, you find a classic phrase of prayer and contemplation. It's gazing upon the beauty of the Lord in His temple. Which is great, but look at the context in these verses. Verse 5 is a summary. This gazing upon the beauty of the Lord happens to be when? In the day of trouble. In the day of adversity. In the day of trouble, I'm going to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now that day of trouble is described earlier in this psalm. In verse 2, it's evil men advancing against me. In that same verse, enemies and foes are attacking me. In verse 3, there are armies that are besieging me. In verse 4, war breaks out against me. That's bad. That's all bad. But here's the thing. David is an ancient king. Living in an ancient time where stuff like this happens all the time. And so it's probably his experience, but it's not ours. And so what do we do? We go to the other end of the psalm. Look at verse 10. Though my father and my mother forsake me. That sounds much more modern. Sounds much more contemporary. And it's not good either. How David describes the day of trouble in verse 5 is the whole gamut of human experience of suffering. 
And anything that you might be facing right now, whatever it might be, anything that you face right now is fitting in this spectrum. Any of the enemies of your heart are found right here in this psalm. There is a, a, a very powerful thought and phrase in the writings of Ernest Becker, Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Denial of Death, a sociologist from the Midwest. He writes, I think that taking life seriously means something such as this. That whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the grotesque, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. The rumble of panic underneath everything. End of quote. Becker wrote, and regardless of whether or not you go to the extremes in this rhetoric as he does, what Becker was writing is that if you're going to take life seriously, you have to deal honestly with this rumble of panic that seems to be beneath everything. In other words, to close your eyes, to put your head in the sand, or to buy in some Pollyannish sentiment is really not to be authentic and it's not to be truthful about life. And here's what this psalm does. This psalm, Psalm 27, like the rest of the Bible, is about taking life seriously. It's about taking life seriously, both the good and the bad, and being serious about your experience of those two spectrums, of those two extremes in the spectrum. Now, according to David, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord is not escapist strategy. Gazing upon the beauty of the Lord is dealing realistically with what is happening in life. Your life and in your heart and all around you. Look back at verse 5. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Now read verse 6. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At His tabernacle I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. I don't know what's happening to David. But whatever is happening to David on the day of his trouble, he's not denying it. And he's not trying to repress it. And he's not trying to to, to have this British uh, stiff upper lip. He's He's not trying to be stoic. He himself says that he's surrounded by people who are intent on devouring his flesh, whatever that means, but it's not good. And in the midst of all of that, David is gazing upon the beauty of God. And because he's doing that, his head is up. His head is up. Whatever this is, it not only enables you to cope with the problem, but to be triumphant. David's head is up. It's exalted, which is a means of, of uh, uh, which means victory over the problem. What David is talking about is a way of triumphing over the rumble of panic that's underneath everything. So how do we gaze upon it? That's a big question. In verse eight, David says, "My heart says of you, seek his face, your face, O Lord, your face." O Lord, I will seek. In Hebrew, to seek the face of the Lord was to seek an experience of God's presence. In, in Hebrew, the word for face also meant presence. There's, in Hebrew, there was no abstract word for presence. And so it was rendered as coming before the face of a person. And the face, as you know, is where you go to talk to somebody. 
Uh, in fact, you know, as I mentioned this morning, there are times when Ellen is talking to me and I may not be looking at her face and so that I may be hearing, but I'm not listening. And she says, you need to look at me. Look me in the eye. I'm telling you something important. We have dinner at the Johnsons next Tuesday night. To, 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 to go to somebody's face was to have an experience of that person. And so to, to seek the face of God is not some general way of saying that you believe in God. Oh, I'm seeking the face of God. It's not a general way of saying you believe and acknowledge that there's a God. It's a way of saying an experience of the reality of God in your life. Now sometimes, as in Isaiah chapter 6, that famous passage, the experience that people have of God is of His holiness. They're overcome by the greatness and the power and the searing might of His holiness. And then over in Ezekiel 1, you have this experience of God's glory. Holiness and glory. But David is not seeking any of these things right now. He's, he's looking for an experience of God's beauty. Gazing upon God's beauty in the temple. So really, what is it? What is this beauty? Or any other beauty, for that matter. Is it not pleasure in the perception it's pleasure and it's perception. It's perception and it's pleasure. Perception, perception by itself might bring you some useful information like the light is red and so I need to stop my car before entering into the intersection. Or I might perceive a person walking down the sidewalk and I either greet them because we're friends or I run away because he's an enemy or I avoid running into them because we're on the same path. Perception is just you know, being able to, to, to glean the useful information. It's helpful to be aware and it's helpful to, to perceive. Perception is just awareness of the fact. And it is useful. But if something is beautiful, you experience pleasure in the perception of it. Uh, during my sophomore year at ACU, I had to take a music appreciation class taught by uh, Gary Mabry, who actually teaches music at UTSA these days. Uh, I've always enjoyed classical music. I've grown up listening to it. It was played in my home. But I did not really enjoy this class. I was a sophomore Bible student. I was eager to preach. I wanted to study Greek and to Hebrew. I wanted to learn about the biblical text. I, you know, this learning about Chopin and Mozart and Brahms was a, base of, of, was a waste of valuable time and money and daylight. But I did so. So I could get the grade in order to get the degree, in order to get out and to do what I really wanted to do, and in so doing, earn a salary to support myself and my wife, Ellen. Now I listen to Chopin and Mozart and Brahms, and I even spend money to listen to Chopin and Mozart and Brahms. Why? Because the perception of Mozart is not just useful in getting that grade and getting out with that degree and getting a job. The perception of Mozart is not just useful. It's so beautiful to me. It's not an instrument to something else, but meaningful in and of itself. To hear the, the, the French horns in the overture to Tannhauser, by Wagner, to, to, to hear those piano pieces 
of Chopin. Back to Psalm 27. David is saying that to perceive God properly, to grasp who He is and what He has done, is pleasurable. That it's beautiful. Now, if you're saying, I believe in God, but have never experienced this kind of beauty of God, then that means that you have not perceived God fully for who He is. Because if you had, you would find Him beautiful. And David, in the middle of his day of trouble, has a knowledge of God that brings David pleasure. Now, there are other places where God is spoken of and or written of as beautiful, and it helps us to understand what the beauty of God is all about. Isaiah 33, verse 17, Your eyes will see the King in His beauty and view a land that stretches afar. The word for beauty there means excellence. Uh, Psalm 50, verse 2, From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Here, the word for beauty means desirability or attractiveness. Now, let's put some of this together. To see something as beautiful is to see it as excellent. When you really dig a piece of music or you find a beautiful landscape, it's beautiful. It's, it, it's all of that to you because there's something exceptional or there's something that's excellent about it. Hilton Head Beach is much more excellent to me because it is a natural beauty as opposed to some of the places that I, I, I grew up going to, Ocean City, Maryland for one, because of all of its commercialization. When you see a beautiful person, you find their characteristics excellent. And because that's true, that's true number two, to see something as beautiful is also to see it as attractive. When you see something so beautiful, you just can't stop looking at it. It's gorgeous. And you can't take your eyes off of it. A beautiful mountain range that you could look at all day long. A beautiful person that you can't take your eyes off of. It captures you. It captivates you. It grabs you. You cannot get enough of it. And even though life is crumbling around David, David gazes upon the beauty of God in his temple and it's captured him and grabbed him, and captivated him. And David is not just looking at God, but he is gazing upon God. And as you gaze upon it, number three, to see something as beautiful is to gain pleasure from it. That's the Psalm 27 word. If you're tired, and you're restless, what do you do? You try to expose yourself to beauty. After the long day, a lot of things that have happened, that have taxed the mind, taxed the body, taxed the spirit, what do you do? What do I do? I get into my truck and I put on my favorite music and I just sometimes sit and I just listen to it. Or what, where do you go when you go on vacation? You're tired and you're exhausted and emotionally you're drained and it's time to get away. And get away, you must. And so you go on vacation, and when you go on vacation, you want to go to a place that is beautiful. You want to be exposed to its beauty. It's more than recharging your batteries. You're calming yourself down from the rumble of the panic underneath everything. Ellen, more than anything else, wants to go to the water and watch the waves come in and hear them crash as she sits on the beach in the sun. She says it's the most relaxing thing she can do. And I know it is because I've seen her just 
transformed right there in one of those little beach chairs, reading a book and watching, watching the waves come in and listening to it. You know, when it comes to going to the beach for Ellen, she doesn't want to go to an ugly beach. She doesn't want to go to an ugly beach. She wants to go to a beautiful beach. There is something about beauty. There's something about gorgeous beauty that satisfies us and calms us and gets rid of that restlessness. That's why we go to beautiful places, beaches, mountains, whatever it might be. That's why we go to beautiful places on vacation. It's because it, it gives us some kind of um, a respite from restlessness and calms us on the inside and helps us deal with the rumble of panic underneath everything. And that is one of the marks of the beauty of God in the Bible. Here's what David says in Psalm 16. He says, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. He says, Before your face is fullness of joy. In fact, when you read this text in Hebrew, there is a doubling of the word joy so that it literally reads, Before your face is joy, joy. Before your face is joy, joy. And you know what that means? It means joy without a way of describing it. Before your face is joy, joy. This means that being in the presence of God and gazing upon His beauty brings a, a satiation of, of joy. It's joy brimming to the overflow in our hearts. It's, it's joy where the joy sensors can want no more. And only God's beauty can do this. And when you have this in your day of trouble, when you have this when you're surrounded by the enemies, and when you have this when, when you feel like you're about to sink, you can lift your head in the midst of that kind of trouble. It's not just an attribute in the list of attributes. It is to find all God's attributes excellent, all of them desirable. All of them more profound and satisfying than anything else in life. It is God in all His fullness becoming the most beautiful thing in your life. And desiring every day, whether it's a good day or a bad day, to gaze upon the beauty of God in His temple. I'll end with a story. A story that I've, I've told a couple of times the last 12 years or so. It's about uh, an English missionary by the name of Alan Gardner who wanted to start a church in South America, wanted to be a church planner. And to do that in the 1850s was to say goodbye to everything that you've ever known in this life, to say goodbye to family, to say goodbye to career. You probably were not coming back. You would not expect to return to your native soil or to your family or to, to your home. And to do that in the 1850s, you were leaving comfort, you were leaving family, you were leaving career, and Gardner never made it. Gardner had sailed to the southern tip of South America to that area known as Tierra de Fuego, which is a bitterly cold spot on the earth. And there they ran into trouble, and the ship started taking on water, and the ship sank. And Gardner was washed ashore with only six months of food supplies, and no one was going to come after him. And no one did. No one was going to come after him and those that survived. No one did. 
And Alan Gardner died slowly of starvation in the cold. And as these things happened, as, as time passed, lots of time passed, there was a ship that came up on the wreck in the place they found where Gardner had died. And uh, here's a short piece from, from his biography. By the time a relief ship finally reached Patagonia in October 1851, almost a year after the missionaries had arrived, Gardner and his men had all died of starvation. Gardner's emaciated body was found lying beside a boat. He was clothed in three suits with wool stockings over his arms to ward off the numbing cold. What had the English missionary thought during those last horrifying days? Had this terrible ordeal destroyed his faith? Were his dying days filled with nothing but despair and disillusionment? The men off the relief ship found his journal. They were amazed at one of his latter entries, and I quote, Poor and weak as we are, our boat is the very Bethel, that is the house of God, the very Bethel to our soul, for we feel and know that God is here. Asleep or awake, I am beyond the power of expression. Happy. And at the end, he wrote down the words of Psalm 34, verse 10. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And right after that, he wrote, I am overwhelmed by a sense of the goodness of God. Dying of starvation and shipwreck, alone, far from home, he is overwhelmed by the sense of God's presence. And he is happy. Why isn't he mad? And why is he not afraid? Because he had the main thing he wanted. God was, was not useful to him because he wanted a successful career. God was beautiful to him. And God was beautiful to David who went surrounded by men who wanted to devour his flesh, only wanted to gaze upon the beauty of God. And the promise is that God can be beautiful to us. Brad's going to lead us in a song right now. And if there are ways that our church can minister to you, whatever it might be, we want you to come down